For those of you who weren't here at the beginning, my name's Guy Armstrong. I'm one of the Spirit Rock teachers. Sylvia couldn't be here this morning, so asked me to uh, sit in with you all, and I'm really happy to be here. I've had uh, great times with uh, Sylvia's group in the past, so I'm happy to come again. What I thought uh, we might talk about this morning is um, something along the themes of uh, our worldly life and our spiritual life. And while these two don't need to be in conflict, uh, they often are. (laughs) Especially living in Marin County in the 21st century. Life is so complicated uh, these days and so expensive around here. That that breeds some of the problems. And some of it also is a shift in values that happens as we get more and more into, into practice. So I want to talk about um, this from a few different directions, a little bit the outer and also the inner um, relationship to these questions. Somebody asked me at the end of a retreat recently, on a retreat up the hill, they were in an interview and asked, why is it so hard to stay present in daily life? And I thought that was a really good question because I think that we should all be looking at that uh, question in our own lives, in our own experience. So I'll just put it out to you all as a group. Why is it so hard to stay present in daily life? (laughs) It seems to be more than normal. It seems to be universal. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of distractions, such as Yeah. Twice of everything drives me nuts. The crowds of people swarming around are incredibly aggravating. <laughs> 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 All right, there are lots of. Certainly, there are, lo- there are lots of stimulations. There are lots of things to deal with out there. What else? Um, I'd like to just say how I had a difficult time mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There were detours on the road. Right. Um, the exits or entrances to the freeway were closed, and I didn't know how to come. Um, right. I thought it was going to beat the whole system by having a tape of Sylvia Gracie uh, listening to that on <laughs> she also has one on road sage, so that's a good one. So I was very focused on listening to her tape. Yes. Consequently, I got lost. <laughs> uh, yeah.
to come back here um, was was uh, it was the only safe place I knew to come. Right. And yet I couldn't get here. So <laughs> <laughs> I left in plenty of time and yeah. it took me over an hour to get here and yeah. it was late. Um, but once I turned the tape off and I then truly focused on the mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. I went on Century Street, I would have worn mm-hmm. out but trying to be persistent doesn't seem to work. <laughs> <laughs> and what yeah. happened is I wasn't fully able to listen to what Sylvia was saying because I right. had to pay attention to the traffic. Right. So trying to do two things at once did not really work. Right. Um, and it was disappointing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Well, this is kind of a really good illustration, isn't it, of um, <laughs> spiritual values and worldly values and where we put the emphasis in our attention. And I I do want to come back to this, because I think this is a good highlight. Let's see if there are other comments. Yes, in the back. I think that the problem is that your mind tends to jump around from subject to subject, even when there's no stimulus. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I'd like to look at both aspects of that comment. Um, the first part was that the mind tends to jump around anyway, even when there aren't stimuli. And I think this is a really important thing for meditators to start to notice and to take into account. Our minds are habitual in their jumping around. This is sometimes described as monkey mind, where the mind just swings from one branch to the next and it won't let go of one branch until it sees the next one that it's going to cling on to. So this tendency of the mind to always be occupied with some kind of distraction is a really important thing to come to terms with. This is something that can be trained. This is really the purpose of meditation, is to train this habit to be in a different mode so that the mind starts to like being in the present moment more and more and sees that it doesn't actually need these distracting thoughts to cling on to in times when there's basically peace or a lack of stimulation around. So partly we could say this is a habit, but as you mentioned, when there are lots of stimuli coming in, then it stirs the mind up even further. Yes? I think in modern day things here, there are so many complexities in modern life that our attention is drawn in many ways. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, you, I think your comments are right on. The dividing of attention, when we look at what it does inwardly, you know, I, it's, it's hard to measure the outer effect in terms of efficiency, but inwardly it fragments us. And we can't, we, I think as a culture, we've kind of lost our ability to be wholehearted with what we do in the present moment. And you look at kids, kids have that. They're completely with whatever they're doing. You give them one thing to do, and if it engages them, they're 100% with us, with it. Whereas for us, we've been so fragmented by training that it's hard to bring 100% of our attention and energy to anything that we do. And mindfulness does offer uh, a clear alternative of fully being with what is in the present. Let's take just one or two more. This, I think this gets to another piece of the heart of what I wanted us to explore this morning is are we, in our worldly life, are we doing the things that will actually bring us happiness? Or are we getting lost and distracted in our very activities and leading down a trail that will lead somewhere but not necessarily to real happiness? Thank you. Last, last comment, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. The, and this conditioning is something that really is highlighted by the practice of meditation, I think. When we start to try to come into the present in an, an ongoing and consistent way, we really see how easily the mind just swings to the past or the future, just out of habit, just out of conditioning. And the good news is that can be changed that can be retrained and we can learn a new habit for that. Good, thank you. So I think these comments have highlighted a lot of the the themes that I hoped that we would touch on this morning and I want to go into them all in a little more detail. Let me just ask, how many people here have been on at least a day-long silent retreat? Great. And how many people have been on a residential uh, meditation retreat? Okay, uh, much of the same population, actually, that's interesting. Uh, one of the things that we find, I think, when we try to sustain this practice of mindfulness over, say, eight hours or, or eight days, is that um, it becomes pretty much a full-time job. It can take all of our attention just to stay in the present moment. And the nice thing is about the retreat setting or the day-long setting is we don't have any other responsibilities. We don't have to interact with people. We don't have to carry out our jobs. We don't have to take care of our children or look after our partners. The only task we have in those settings is to be in the present moment with our experience. And we find out how difficult that is. We don't have anything else to do. But, I mean, I don't know if people would be willing to share. How much of the time are you able to be in the present moment, even under the ideal settings? 10%? 20%? <laughs> little tiny bit, huh? It's hard. It's tough work. And that's when we don't have anything else to do. 
Now then we go back into, into worldly life. As practitioners, if we want to take this practice on as a, as a real commitment, we want to bring that ability to be in the present moment fully into our daily life as well. This is not just something we do on the cushion or during a day long or in a silent retreat. We really want to live from that place of being in the present moment. And there's no reason that we can't with training and with um, practice. That's really what practice is for. It is possible, but it takes a lot of work. So in lay life, we have this full-time job of wanting to be in the present. We have another full-time job in lay life, in worldly life, which I'm sure you've noticed, which is earning a livelihood, taking care of our family, looking after our health, uh, doing our volunteer work and service work, looking after uh, aging parents and children, relationship and so on. So we basically, in, in worldly life, we have two full-time jobs being in the present and attentive to all of that, and taking care of all the external things that we need to take care of. So it's no wonder that it takes a while to put these two full-time jobs together. Don't be discouraged if this doesn't happen automatically or easily. This is a long process of training. They can go together, but what's happening is that we have to divide our attention, or we might say our intention, just as you shared about driving over here and trying to listen to a tape and also follow the detour signs. In worldly life, we need to bring our attention into the present moment. That's one sustained attention we need to maintain. But then we also need to care um, for all the things of our daily life with a lot of attention also. So we're kind of divided, and I'd say there's an inherent um, conflict in the beginning for us because of trying to support two intentions two different intentions at the same time. Question? Yeah. Yeah. I think we are I think we are way overscheduled. I think it's really true. And sometimes it seems like the only answer is to jam things in further together. How many of you have seen the movie Himalaya? Just right, about the same number who've been on these residential retreats. Um, Himalaya is playing at the Rafael and probably other places in the Bay Area, and it's about uh, village life. Theoretically, in Tibet is actually filmed in Nepal, but theoretically in t- Tibet, and it's about the life of uh, people who grow grain and then trade that grain uh, for salt and trade the salt for. No, trade the salt for grain, for more grain. So you get a sense, it it could have been set a thousand years ago. It could have been filmed a thousand years ago. You get a sense for the simplicity of the life that people used to live. And this is in our culture as well. In in Western culture, farming was the occupation of most of the nation a hundred or two hundred years ago. And that simple um, down-to-earth life where there weren't things like Um, tax-free mutual funds and a hundred different kinds of uh, sandwich that you could order every time you go to the deli. Um, Ten different activities for your children uh, after they finish the school day. Life was much, much simpler and it kind of lent itself to being in the present moment in a way that modern life really doesn't. So on some level, I think we probably need to take a look as practitioners 
at the complexity of our outer lives. And I, I see in myself as I get older, and I see in a lot of friends as we get older, a real interest in simplifying. Now, there's a time in life when that's not possible. When you're starting a career and raising a family, they're, especially in this area, it's so expensive. There's so many demands, there may not be any choices for simplification. But as we get older and some of the family responsibilities start to lift, I really think we need to look seriously at simplifying and creating space. When we create space outwardly, it creates so much more space in the mind. It's amazing. Taking the outer clutter away just opens up a huge amount of, of inner spaciousness. So even choices like how much television we choose to watch, how many films we go to, um, how many magazines we read during a week, renunciation in those areas can, can make a difference too. So I think the outer is, is important. But I think I want to focus most on, on the inner. So I think part of the problem is that um, we have these dual intentions to look after ourselves and our family and to be present while we do it. But worldly life um, offers so many seductive possibilities. There are so many ways that we can lose track of our spiritual orientation in worldly life because our culture doesn't support spiritual values. I, I don't believe it supports them at all. Um, try to um, talk to your employer about taking an extra week's leave to do a meditation retreat and see how supportive the external situation is. So worldly life offers many, many um, possibilities that are um, intriguing, fulfilling, rich, lots of people to meet, lots of things to do, ways to become known, ways to serve, but they don't necessarily support a spiritual life. And I think the problem is that we can get lost in any one of these avenues. I was talking to someone um, this week who had lost their partner to cancer. And she was saying that um, before her partner's death, she was very wrapped up in her career. It was almost more important than her family. And then going through the illness and the death of her partner, she said, totally shifted her priorities back. And her career right now feels kind of hollow to her because she sees how much more important are the people in her life. But until we get a wake-up call like that, I think we can all tend to put a huge amount of emphasis on career. And there are a lot of fun things about many, many work situations these days. But at the end of the day, I wonder if it's the most important thing in our life. So something, again, I think we need to look at. I want to read a couple of quotations, and these are both from um, people, I don't know, you may have seen this new breed of spiritual teacher that's popping up. They're not connected with any tradition, but they've sort of woken up on their own. And one of the prime examples right now is Eckhart Tolle, and this is his book, The Power of Now, which I notice has been on the San Francisco bestseller list for something like four months. It's not on the U.S. bestseller list, I can assure you, but it has been on the Bay Area bestseller list for a while. And he's, I think he's 53 years old. He was German by birth and now lives in Canada and just had a spontaneous awakening some years ago, um, spent time just sitting on a park bench and sharing his understanding with people who, who wandered by, but is now teaching. And uh, I, th I think his book is pretty good, and I wanted to read something from it. 
He's talking about working with our difficult uh, emotions, the afflictive emotions of the mind. So basically all these emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond name and form. This is a little dense, so I'm gonna, I want to read this again. All afflictive emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond name and form. In other words, the meaning is that who we truly are is not this body and this personality. Who we are truly is something that goes beyond our name and form, something the Buddha pointed to as the deathless. All the major religions point to an aspect of immortality in our being that's formless. And he's saying that when we lose touch with knowing that we are um, deathless in the most fundamental way, there's a deep kind of anguish that comes out of that. And then I'd also like to read from another uh, teacher in this same mode. His name is Tony Parsons. He's British. He was born in 1933, and he had one of these spontaneous awakenings when he was 20. And his book is called As It Is. Whatever I seek or think I want, all of my desires are only a reflection of my longing to come home. Home is my original nature. It is right here, simply in what is. So these two are basically saying the same thing. Eckhart Tolle is pointing to the pain of that loss, and Tony Parsons is pointing to the desire to get back. And what Parsons is saying is that all forms of desire are really just a desire to get back to knowing who we truly are, because that's the only place that lasting fulfillment can come from. So what I think happens in our worldly life often is that all uh, these myriad forms of desire point us in all different directions, toward money, toward fame, uh, toward uh, sexual relationships, toward uh, pleasures of food and drink and so on, great houses. And all these kinds of desires that proliferate are kind of misleading indicators of what we really want. What we really want is to know our being beyond name and form, beyond birth and death, beyond perishing. But we seek for it because we've lost touch with that. We seek for it in many, many different avenues that can't ultimately lead to, to lasting happiness. But it's not to say that these outer activities are wrong. We need to be involved in a livelihood that takes care of ourselves. We need to be involved in looking after our family and our partners and our parents. So the question is, to what extent can we be involved in those areas and not get uh, misled by what's really important and where our real happiness is going to come from. To me, the best description of where we get misled uh, is spelled out by the Buddha. And it's in a sutta, uh, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, called The Vicissitudes of Life. It's a great title. And it starts off like this. These eight worldly conditions, O monks, keep the world turning around. And the world turns around these eight worldly conditions. What eight? Gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. 
So he's basically saying the way we get misled is we mistake these eight conditions as the most important things in life. And the degree to which we invest in them is the degree to which we carry ourselves off from our true spiritual track. So I find these very, very helpful topics for reflection and to look in my own life how much my focus in living and where I put my time and energy is around these eight situations as opposed to the true spiritual practice of knowing who I am, coming back to my source. Because the problem with these conditions is they're always changeable. They always alternate. Have you ever known anyone who has experienced only gain, (laughs) only success, only pleasure, or only praise? It's not possible. They alternate for all of us. And if our happiness is bound up just with the positive half, we're going to get slammed when we encounter the negative. It's not through any fault of our own that we encounter the negative. Everybody encounters loss and pain and blame and failure. Even the Buddha. And I'll tell some of the stories about the Buddha's difficulties as we go, just so you know. You know, even if you're really cooled out, these things happen to you. So I'll talk a little bit about um, each of them. Um, I'll talk first about gain and loss. And I don't really want to get into the kind of great losses in our life. I think losing a partner to death, losing a child, um, loss of parents, those are major things. And hopefully we only encounter those relatively few times in our life. But mostly the Buddha talked about gain and loss in more worldly terms. And in worldly terms, this is a great territory, the Bay Area, to see gain and loss. (laughs) You've probably noticed the stories in the newspapers over the last year, the dot-com downturn, the stock market collapse. There are huge stories of wealth rising and falling in this area. I'll just tell one from my experience. I went to work, it was about 13 years ago, for Microsoft. They were still a small company back then. And I worked for them for about five years. It was after I left, they started getting in all their trouble. That's their problem. (laughs) And uh, my first boss, the guy who hired me into the company, was a really great guy. I liked him a lot as a person and as a manager. And um, shortly after I was there, he got into kind of a political difficulty in in the company. He got passed over for a promotion. And the job went to um, somebody else in our office who he didn't respect, didn't think was a good manager. He was very upset that he'd been passed over, and he was more upset that now he had to report to this other person who he felt was not as good a manager as he was. And one thing led to another, and one day in a a peak of of anger, uh, he resigned, tendered his resignation. Over the weekend, he had second thoughts. Because as I came to find out, he had about 10,000 stock options back then in Microsoft. And over the years since then, Microsoft stock has split a total of 72 times. So today that would be something like 720,000 shares of Microsoft, which he could have bought at something like a dollar a share. So I figured out that today he would have been worth about $40 million if he had stayed with the company. But in a fit of anger, he tendered his resignation. He called up on Monday and said, you know, I'm very sorry. 
I didn't mean I'd like to take it back, but his new manager said, I'm sorry, your resignation has already been accepted. $40 million. <laughs> Boom. A friend of mine commented, um, because of the stock market collapse, that uh, he knows people who are worth $20 million now who feel themselves to be poor because a year ago they were worth $40 million. And, you know, there's a lot of dukkha in the collapse of the stock market. We don't hear much about it, I think, because people at that level are embarrassed to talk about feeling poor with $20 million, and probably they should be. <laughs> but there's a lot of dukkha in the collapse of the stock market, the gain and the loss. So the Buddha goes on to talk about how we can, uh, how he sees relating to these conditions. He says these eight worldly conditions are encountered by an uninstructed worldling, means someone who hasn't heard the teachings, and they are also encountered by an instructed noble disciple. What is the difference between these two? He goes on to say, when an uninstructed worldling comes upon gain, he does not reflect upon it thus. This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know it as it really is. And when he comes upon loss, he does not reflect upon it thus. This is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know it as it really is. With such a person, gain and loss keep his mind engrossed. When gain comes, he is elated. And when he meets with loss, he is dejected. Being thus involved in likes and dislikes, he will not be freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, grief, and despair. He will not be freed from suffering, I declare. But, O monks, when an instructed noble disciple comes upon gain, he reflects on it thus, This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. And so he will reflect when loss comes upon him. He understands these things as they really are, and they do not engross his mind. Thus he will not be elated by gain or dejected by loss. Having thus given up likes and dislikes, he will be freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, grief, and despair. He will be freed from suffering, I declare. This, monks, is the difference between an uninstructed noble, between an instructed noble disciple and an uninstructed worldling. So the Buddha is basically pointing to an equanimity of mind as we meet the changing conditions that life presents, the changing conditions of gain and loss. And an, an important aspect of it is wisdom, that we see the impermanent nature of gain and loss. We see that nobody is always gaining. Nobody is always being praised. Nobody just has the positive side of these things. These things change for everybody. There's another there's an amazing story from the Tibetan tradition about this. Uh, this is a teacher named Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. He was born in Tibet in 1932, escaped from Tibet in 1959, and went to India. He's a very great Dzogchen master. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.